Hello, everybody, and welcome into The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. No rational or sane man in his position could disregard that information and reach the opposite conclusion. And Donald Trump cannot escape responsibility by being willfully blind. I don't know about you guys, but I am loving these hearings. I really feel like they're moving the needle. Um, Case in point, just last night, the latest news is that the J6 committee is really considering issuing a subpoena to Donald Trump. So um, I like where this is headed. I'm going to quickly go through the news uh, and point out a few things and then get to our interview uh, with Fred Guttenberg, uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, The other thing that came out yesterday, which is really interesting, is that there's a D.C. cop who now confirms um, Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, little story about what happened in the limo when Donald Trump uh, tried to grab the wheel and uh, also the neck of his Secret Service agent. Uh, I still would love to have been in that that car at that moment. you know, because the Secret Service, a couple of these guys came out and said, oh, we, met, we didn't understand that. We didn't, that's that what, you know, we think happened and, and kind of refuted her, her, her uh, uh, recollection of, of what she was told about that. And, um, and then we learned yesterday that the Secret Service deleted like five or six tweets, uh, I'm sorry, uh, texts. Uh, so that whole story is like sort of like a sub story to this whole uh, Trump craziness. So what did we learn this week? We had a hearing, and it was really fascinating. We learned uh, more about the Trump administration connections to white nationalist groups. Uh, Roger Stone is kind of at the head of that. We learned how Trump activated, incited, and mobilized these groups. We learned more about the cray-cray Star Wars bar meeting on December 18th with Trump, Sidney Powell, Rudy, Flynn, uh, Overstock CEO, my pillow guy, Cipollone. I mean, just think of the cast of characters of these. Imagine Obama sitting with the the pillow guy. Like Trump is so fucking crazy that this stuff. You know, Obama, Trump just had a meeting with uh, Goofy from Disneyland, and like no one would be like, "No, nah, that's crazy." But like, just say the same thing about Obama. Obama met some Disney characters at the uh, and and is asking for their opinions on on uh, you know foreign policy. Um, you know, so that at that meeting, you know, that they were catch, hatching plans to seize property, to seize voting machines, declare martial law, and throw the uh, election back to the state legislators. Um, we heard more about the the one forty ish a.m. Trump tweet where it's going to be wild. Come come to the mall on January 6th. It's going to be wild. We learned that the whole J6 thing was not a spontaneous riot, but a premeditated coup attempt. We learned about Trump's clear, undeniable intent. And here's the thing. He knew he lost. He knew he was spreading a big lie. He knew he was unleashing a call to arms. He coordinated the insurrection with Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, other white militias. He knew protesters came armed with AR-15s. And what did he say? Well, they're not here to hurt me, so let them in. I mean, think about that. They're not here to hurt me. <laughs> okay, but if they if they blow the shit out of Nancy Pelosi, that's fine. Uh, he didn't care who they would hurt or kill. He willfully disrupted the peaceful transition of power. He supported the hanging of his VP, 
Mike Pence, he stood in masturbatory glee for roughly three hours and did nothing while thousands of domestic terrorists stormed the Capitol. He tried to overturn the election and overthrow the government. And then the cover-up, the continuing big lie, the obstruction of justice, the witness tampering. He's still doing it. Let's play that clip. After our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us, and this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. I mean, it's the middle of 2022. There are investigations into this guy in D.C., New York, Georgia, all over the place, in Congress. Uh, and he's sitting in his phone in Mar-a-Lago like Al Capone calling witnesses to try to get them to shut up. Like, either he's just stupid or the or just drowning in um, hubris or... I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. It's insanity. And uh, Merrick Garland, hopefully you're listening to all of this. Um, the thing, you know, we also heard this week is that, you know, this, this crazy notion that Trump is just this, uh, you know, uninformed, petulant little child. Uh, you know, we got to coddle him and manipulate him into making decisions that we want because he's, you know, he's he's a tall man and he's 76, but he really is just a little baby, who, you know, who, who doesn't know what to do. Let's play the other clip. President Trump is a 76-year-old man. He is not an impressionable child. Just like everyone else in our country, he is responsible for his own actions and his own choices. I mean, just think about the the the, the theory behind this 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 uh, thing is like he's the president of the United States, but like somehow we're supposed to think like he's just you know uninformed and he doesn't know what to do. He didn't know. He didn't think well. I mean, he's the fucking president. Um, let's let's make something. Let's get something straight here. If the, if this was a dinner, if J six was a dinner, Trump planned the entire meal. He chose the venue. He made up the guest list. He created the menu. He bought all the ingredients. He cooked the meal. He set the table. He chose the silverware, the napkins, the plates, the glasses. He served the meal. He cleaned up afterwards. But then he denied it all. Said it wasn't his dinner. Blamed it on others. Said he was never even there. Then he crashed someone else's dinner um, and and tried to, uh, you know, steal that uh this is what he's doing and like how this is not obvious uh to everyone and especially merrick garland um you know who i believe is watching this very closely and uh i do believe and i am very public with this i do believe trump is going to be prosecuted uh and we see that more and more every day and every single legal expert that you watch on tv says it is now way more likely that he's going to be indicted than not uh, we also learned this week that um, uh, we're now waiting for the big, the big, you know, announcement from Trump. You know, is he going to run? Is he not going to run? And to that, I, I just say a, a wholehearted, who gives a fuck? I don't care if he runs. If he runs, he's not going to win. 
we already know what will happen if he runs. We already know what will happen if he loses. We've been there, done that. We have plenty of advanced time now. Let's just make sure we don't let it happen again. A um, couple of other quick things. Uh, polling is real interesting lately. New York Times, I think it was out this week, that 16% of Trump voters said if he ran again, uh, they would vote for Biden or some other Republican or sit it out. This is key because we don't need all the maggots to, to, to all of a sudden become Democrats. We just need 5, 10, 15%. If 15, up to 15% of Trump voters are peeled away, we're golden. Half of that 16% said that what he did on January 6th was unconscionable. Um, uh, there's a morning consult uh, political poll that said 45% of Republicans say Trump's big lie was just that, a big fat lie. And that's up 36% from, I think, a month before that. That's a 19% jump. That proves that these hearings are moving the needle. Um, lastly, inflation, it's a problem. N numbers came out, July numbers came out. We jumped from, uh, I think it was 8.8% to 9.1%, much hotter than expected. The big question is how much of a problem is that going to be for Democrats in November? Uh, or will the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the nonstop mass shootings outweigh inflation as the most important subjects, not just to voters, but the key moderate Republican, independent, and especially suburban women. So uh, I want to move to our interview today. Um, Fred Guttenberg, uh, he, he's a gun reform and political advocate. He's the father of 14-year-old Jamie, who was murdered in the 2018 Stoneman Douglas High School mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. 16 other students and teachers were killed in that shooting. He's also founder of Orange Ribbons for Jamie and author of the book, Find the Helpers. Um, his book is about overcoming grief through the humanity of others. Welcome into the back room, Fred. Nice to see you again, Andy. Yes. Always nice to see uh, you. So before we get into our conversation, uh, just in, indulge me as I just spent a minute or so throwing you some very well-deserved props. Um, I've said this to you in the past. I'm going to say it again. And I just can't find myself saying it enough. You are a warrior. You know, you're a true American hero and patriot. You're one of those rare people who have uh, been through the gates of hell, who've experienced horrific tragedy, um, and you channel it, you channel it in, in such a positive, transcendent way. Um, it's... It, it's rare. I mean, you've harnessed your grief, your um, your anger, your passion, your emotion uh, into helping other people. And, you know, that's really not just commendable. It's inspirational and because not everybody can do that. Um, and so that that process has taken you to a place where you've been front and center in this move, this gun reform movement, um, which you've now been a part of achieving uh, legislation, historic legislation that for the first time in 30 years. And so uh, for all of that, America owes you a, a great debt of gratitude. Um, and so my question on that is, does that kind of talk make you uncomfortable when people say those things? Oh, I hate it. I do. Um, and you and I have talked before. Um, Listen, 
the only way I see myself is is just continuing to be a dad of two kids, reacting to what happened to my kids. Um, because both my kids were there that day. One of them was killed, and the other one was running for his life and listening to the shots that were killing his sister and will forever have to deal with that. And honestly, I don't, there's, I don't think of myself in any grandiose terms. I think of myself as a dad who has this guilt over the fact that I wasn't using my voice when it was happening to other people's mm -hmm. kids. And, and, and that's what drives me now. It's this, this notion that I waited too long, you know, maybe if my voice was a part of it sooner, my daughter would have survived. Maybe it wouldn't have happened. Maybe other people wouldn't have been killed. And so I don't see myself in any heroic terms. I, I, I see myself driven by the need to do everything I can to make sure another parent doesn't end up feeling this way. Unfortunately, in America, there's 400 million weapons mm -hmm. on the streets, and we see even incremental progress, while it's a super big deal, it's still not enough. I want to play a clip for you. Dreams and dedication are a powerful combination. And I tell people all the time, my baby girl, she was the wisest, strongest person I ever knew. And she stands on my shoulders, pushing me forward. And that, that saying, I live my life by now. Because I have a dream. I have a dream of reducing gun violence in this country. And I am dedicating my life to making sure it happens. And I am doing it for Jamie and all the other victims of gun violence. You've basically been saying that from the very first minutes and hours and... I think, you know, that's the part when I say, you know, you are a hero and a, and a patriot because instead of bringing you to this black hole, and I know you've experienced your grief, it, it motivated you to say those things and to go on this, this journey. Um, how much of that do you feel, Jamie, with you every single day of this, of this effort? Is she truly the, bl the, the blood that runs through your veins in, yeah. in, in fighting this insurmountable, you know, uh, campaign, like, uh, you know, to get gun reform? I mean, first time in 30 years, you know, that, that's, that's, that's a real feather, not just in, in Congress's cap, cap, but in yours as well. No, she is, she is with me every second of every day. Everything I do, everywhere I look, every place I go, um, and, and I do feel as if she sends me what I need it the most, some reminders that she is mm -hmm. with me. Um, and uh, listen, this week maybe is the perfect example of that because this week could not have been any more mm -hmm. crazy. Monday, I was at the White House to celebrate the ceremony. Tuesday morning, I was in court for the appeal of my lawsuit against the gun manufacturer. The only Parkland family who filed a lawsuit like that because it's a very risky thing to do. But but I'm on a mission here. Tuesday evening, myself and the other Parkland families were in 
court with the state attorney preparing for what will be a four-month criminal trial starting Monday of next week. And then Wednesday was what should have been Jamie's 19th birthday. And so I kind of put it out there that way because no matter what I do, you can't ever remove yourself from the reality of why you Mm -hmm. do it. And, and, you know, I hear Jamie's voice in my head all the time. I, I hear her laughter. I hear her silliness. I hear her toughness, sometimes arguing with me. It's, it's, it's like, it doesn't go away. But what I also hear is this faint sound. I was on the phone with my son when the shooting was happening. And he was telling me he was hearing those bullets, the ones on the third floor that were killing his sister. And I heard that faint sound. I live with that in my head. And as long as that sound stays there, I can't not do this. Right. Well, <clears throat> you you know I've been through my own hell. And, you know, part of my yes. passion for your story is because I, I my daughter Sophie is basically around the same age as, as you know, Jamie. And there's a there's a thing you said very early on that if if I had to point to one thing over the years that you've been public that that just has stuck with me in such a raw way, it's when you said something to the effect of "I am Jamie's dad," like not that I was Jamie's dad, but I am Jamie's dad. And I think what you've been saying for the last few minutes sort of illustrates that that. You're not just the father of some girl who was murdered. You're, you are a, the father of a girl, and you operate Always. as if she's Before still I... here, and you need to take care of her, and you need to help her build and grow her legacy as you're trying to do good for this country. And so that, yeah, that comment, that quote from you really stuck with me. You know, after Jamie was killed for a few months, I I struggled every time I spoke about this because I was referring to her in the past tense, and 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 every time I did, it it was something that it would like punch me in the gut again. Um, you know, uh, you know, she was my daughter, but she was killed, and one day it just sort of hit me. It's like. Why am I talking about her in the past tense? She is my daughter. I am her dad. This happened, but that fact hasn't changed. And I stopped referring to Jamie in the past tense that day. Um, in fact, I did a whole TED talk about this a year later about rather than seeing Jamie in the past tense, I talk about it as in a way where our relationship with one another has changed. It's no longer about creating memories together and doing fun things together and but it's it's about now making sure jamie's life lives on through a whole variety of other things and remembering her through pictures and videos and never letting people forget who she was so i can't um go back to talking about her in the past tense. Jamie is my daughter. I am her dad. And I get close to my daughter by visiting her at the cemetery. Does that ever get different for you when you go? 
or is it just always the same? It is. Um, that's a amazing question. Um, I would. It is different now than it was. Um, you know, every time I went there for a while, it's like I couldn't go there and just not cry. Um, I go there now and I talk to Jamie. You know, um, I, I cry on certain occasions, like what should have been Jamie's birthday this Wednesday. Um, but all the in-between stuff, I go there and I talk to my daughter. And I tell her what's going on. And I tell her the impact she's having. And I get her caught up on her life. Um, I get her caught up on my life. Um, so it is different. If anybody were to ever drive by me at the cemetery sitting on the bench there, they they probably think I was somewhat um, ill because I have full-on conversations. My hands, I'm a former New Yorker. My hands are going, but it's just me <laughs> you know, there physically. Um, but yeah, it is different. Well, you know, it's, um, I remember someone once told me that, you know, there will be a day when you can think of your, your loved one and smile and laugh and it won't be all tears. And uh, because it, the process is an evolutionary one. The grief never goes yeah. away. The, the pain never goes away. But you know, over time, it does get less raw. And so you can get back in touch with the laughter and the silliness and smile when you think of someone rather than, than cry as much as you did early on. And I would imagine, you know, based on what you're saying, it seems like that's, you're following that, that you're charting that course in a way. So I'll tell you a funny story, not a funny story, just a real story. And by the way, somebody said that to me as well. Um, the person who said that to me, uh, three weeks after Jamie was killed was at the time, private citizen, Joe mm -hmm. Biden, um, who isn't, who's a person who like us understands grief and, and I'll never forget his words. He said, the day is going to come where a picture that, or a video that brings sadness and tears to your eyes now will bring a positive reaction and, and, and laughter and, and, I tell you that because for the past few years, I've avoided Facebook memories. My wife looks, my wife needs mm. that, you know, we're all different, but I've avoided them because it was too real. And I remember those moments, but about two weeks ago, I happened to look and a Facebook memory popped up of, of Jamie and I, and a friend of Jamie's being incredibly silly and Jamie trying to teach me a dance move, which is not a thing you want to see. But it just made it super fun and funny. And I was so glad I saw it, you know, and I ended up sharing it because um, it didn't make me cry. I, you know, the idea that there won't be more of those does. But when I saw that, I, I laughed. Mm. You know, I remember doing that. And, and I'll never, I'll never, ever forget that moment. And I was glad that I actually saw that memory pop up. Yeah, I mean, and the memories are what you have for the rest of your life, and they can bring you joy and and smiles and laughter. Um, but there's always that that underpinning 
of pain and it never goes away. It's just, it's like it bubbles right under the surface. Um, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about Uvalde and what we learned this week through this video that came out. Um, I did not lose a child. And when I watch a video like that, the top of my head explodes. And so I wonder when you watch a video like that, especially what happened at Parkland with the security uh, guy, you know, this good guy with a gun bullshit that keeps being rammed down our throats. And then you see, especially at the schools, the good guys with the guns running away. I mean, literally running away. One is checking his phone. Another one is laughing. And then, you know, of course, standing there for, was it over an hour? Like, what goes through your mind when you see that? I can't fathom what goes through your mind. So I'll answer your question directly, but then I actually want to walk through this a little bit. I, I get fucking enraged, you know, um, because for two reasons, A, those we assign the role of protecting they're genuinely afraid to protect because they want to go home also and they are not trained to do this kind of protection because america has failed to come to grips with the reality of how many guns we've put on our streets um and we assume that everybody is heroic and full of courage and that they'll stop these moments. But every time these moments happen, we realize that's not always the case. So I'm enraged because more could have and should have happened. And all of those kids didn't need to die. There may have been kids who died, but it didn't need to be that Mm. many. It's the same thing in Parkland. Had the person with the gun done something, anything, shot into the air just to cause the killer to pause and stop and maybe get afraid anything my daughter could be alive Mm -hmm. today you know she only needed another second she was running for her life it's on video and turning into a hallway she needed one more second so you know these good guys with the guns who we hired to protect um had they just done something anything maybe they couldn't have saved everyone they could have saved some of them and and so watching the video of this is just so horrifically enraging and disturbing so but i want to take a deeper dive because we we need to really understand what's going on here the whole notion of good guy with a gun actually started four days after the sandy hook shooting four days after the sandy hook shooting was when wayne lapierre of the nra finally reacted to that shooting and came out and said for the very first time, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Nobody had ever used that line before. The Sandy Hook shooting is what got the NRA to introduce that bullshit. And they turned the Sandy Hook shooting into a gun sales bonanza. And they've been on that gun sales bonanza since. And so nobody should be shocked. And listen, man, I say this all the time gun safety is police safety because the truth is law enforcement knows that if they wait what if 
they go into uncertain situations, there's a chance they're going to be outgunned. Law enforcement knows that if they go into uncertain situations, there's a chance they may not go home to their family. And so that's part of what causes them to not react. In the case of Uvalde, there was certainly um, all sorts of other issues going on there. But this is the reality of an America where we've put 400 million weapons on the streets with unlimited ammunition. And by the way, we've given killers the ability to go out and buy body armor as well. You know, so we, we shouldn't be shocked that law enforcement has no idea on how to react to a situation like this. We should be shocked and pissed at the legislators who allowed us to get to this place, who, who knew this was coming because people like me have been telling them for years, okay, and who still fought us every step of the way, who refused to do anything, and by the way, who still refused to do anything about the big issues. You know, John Cornyn, who played a really big role in passing the legislation that was, you know, we had a ceremony on Monday, um, said a day later, this is it. Don't ask me to do anything about AR-15s. Don't ask me to do anything about ammunition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same bullshit. So you know what? While we have to be really angry at that failure, I'm going to keep my anger directed at those who put this country in a place where that failure has happened before. And by the way, my friend, that failure is going to happen again. It's inevitable. And that that leads me to a question I wanted to ask you about the, the, the nexus between politics and then specifically gun reform. Um, who are your specific, like what you just mentioned, who are your specific targets in Washington? I've seen you rail against Rubio and people like that, but who do you feel are the main obstacles to getting something yeah. truly meaningful in a big way done? So I'm going to make this actually really simple um, because America is different than it was only four years ago when Jamie was killed. When you still actually had some Republicans back then who would have joined Democrats in common sense initiatives, that has become a a, a party that is just hard no. It is the only reason that you got those to move on this particular piece of legislation is because 80 to 90% of America wanted it. Um, But that's as far as they were going to go. So you now have 80 to 90% of America who wants to pass something. You have a president that will sign all forms of gun reform legislation that come to his desk. You have a House of Representatives that is currently constructed with Speaker Pelosi that will pass so much more than what we saw happen on Monday. And then you have the Senate. And in the Senate, you have, I would say, a certain 48, they're all Democrats, who will go along with far more than we did. There's going to be two that you're going to have to convince on the Democratic side. And then you have the other 50. They're going to be a hard no. We literally have the majority will of this country held hostage by that 50. That's what we have. And so it's not a question anymore of specific names. It's a specific party. If if America wants to do something about this, 
there's really a simple solution. We got legislation passed this time around because in 2018, we flipped the House, and in 2020, we flipped the presidency and the Senate. The voting mattered. We are in this place because there are too many election cycles before that, not enough people voted. If people want to see more of this, and I believe they do, show up and vote in this November. This is the election of our lifetime. This is the most important election of our lifetime. We should have presidential year voter turnout this election, even though it's a midterm. And not just because on this issue, but the gun safety candidates are also the same ones who support freedom, who support democracy, who support a right to choose, who want to do more about the environment. That's just a fact. Show up and vote. I can't, you know, I can't think of a better advocate for this cause than you. It's just like you're just the way you're wired and the the ability to be the messenger that you are is truly impressive and uh, otherworldly. I mean, I heard you say once uh, that you that when Jamie died, your fear died. And I think that's a key way to explain you. And I understand that because, you know, I walked in and found my yeah. wife dead. And I always said to people after that, there's nothing you can do to me anymore to rattle me like I've been through the worst possible thing or maybe the worst possible thing is losing a child and I haven't experienced that but I've been through hell and so my fear died and so when I heard you say that it just resonated with me in a way that just so completely explained you and then I heard something you said I think it was at the memorial right after Jamie died and it was very similar it was like you know, this shooting, it's like you've, you've messed with the wrong community and you've messed with the wrong dad. And why are you the wrong dad? Why are you the guy that, that somehow has become this, this incredible voice for this campaign that is so, uh, it's like climbing Mount Everest, yet you are climbing it. And you're, you're getting, you're not at the summit, but you're, you're, you're making strides. What makes you that guy? You know, I guess to everybody, whether you're in my family, my friends, or you're my former business partners, who always told me that I was too relentless, um, and sometimes meant it as a compliment and sometimes not, um, I, I, I gather that relentlessness is really important here um, because I have nothing to mm -hmm. lose. You're, you're not going to make me go away. Um, I've already lost, you know, um, what, what I looked forward to the rest of my life, which was walking my daughter down the aisle. I've lost that. It'll never happen. Uh, and as long as that remains true, I will seek to defeat anybody who's on the wrong side of this. You know, in addition to losing fear, um, and maybe this is part of the question you're asking, I lost the ability to be in awe of people. And 
So I don't care what position you hold in this country, mm -hmm. congressman, senator, president, it doesn't matter to me. Supreme Court justice, you're either on the right side or the wrong side of mm -hmm. this. And that's how I judge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, what I always think about is, and I relate it back to my own situation, but what's different for me, for you is that, and that I don't go through, is that as I'm grieving and continue to grieve, and it's been 16 years, there's a shooting every week. And you, you, you are dragged right back to February 14th, 2018, every single time there's a shooting, especially if there's a school shooting. I can't imagine how that impacts just your normal grieving process, your your advocacy, when it's like you're just punched in the gut seemingly every week. Do you find that that inspires you and fuels you or or does it knock you for a loop before you can get back up and continue? I would say none of it inspires me because of the um, the violent nature of it. I just, does it fuel me? Yeah, it, it's it just everyone reminds me of why this is such a big deal and why I can't stop. Um, I will tell you some set me back more than others. Um, Uvalde and just it set me back it, it it was it brought me back to february 14 2018 in such a visceral way that um it took me some time to get my bearings again i, I would say the only um, thing that kind of helped me actually get through it was these non-stop interviews that i ended up doing gave me the ability to keep getting things off my mm -hmm. chest. Um, and and I have found that speaking and writing has been very therapeutic for me um, because I don't let anything get bottled up. Um, it all comes out you know, for good or for better mm -hmm. or for worse. Well, in in that regard, I want to ask you a tough question. Uh, you know, in my, my documentary about Adrian, I, I met with her killer. Do you... Yeah. Where you are today, do you ever see a point where you, whether it's to vent or to find out something that you still think you don't know about that day, do you ever think you'll meet him? Well, I've seen him in the courtroom. Do I ever have a need to talk to him or meet with him? No, I, I, I just, I want him dead the fastest way possible, whether it's through uh, the, the penalty of, you know, the death mm -hmm. penalty or he some it happens in a prison cell um i have no need to have a, another word with him um i have no need to understand him i have no need to hear more um he took away my daughter's life and 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 i just want to be there when he is hopefully judged as somebody who needs to have his life taken mm -hmm. away um, that's totally understandable. And, uh, and that may change over time. You know, uh, I, I, I didn't really make my decision until many years later. You know, 
I don't think so. It, it's, I don't ever use his name. I, I don't ever think about him in any capacity except for the legal capacity that I unfortunately have to be a part of. Um, I don't think about questions I have for him at all. Um, he is, he is the, um, he is just a he is a he is a well an individual who i just know i want right. gone that's like my only thought right. about it you you um, your wife jennifer and your son jesse uh have sort of taken a different path than you uh, yeah. they're very private uh and i'd like to assume that that privacy has afforded them uh you know a bigger degree of uh, or a bigger ability to deal with their grief and take care of themselves. Uh, are you taking care of yourself? <laughs> um, I'd love to say yes. Um, listen, as I said, for me, writing and speaking has been mentally therapeutic, but physically, um, you know, I haven't done exercise in a long time. I'm not eating the best I can mm -hmm. eat. Um, not as well as I could be or should be. I've sort of, you know, my wife and I have been talking about this a lot lately, and we know the next few months are going to be just brutal because of the trial. But after the trial um, and going into next year, I am committed to finding a different kind of life balance that gives me the ability to make sure I'm doing that. Um, whether it's indulging in my love of sports I just bought season tickets to the Florida Panthers um, and I'm going to make sure I go to games, um, whether it's finally eating better mm -hmm. and getting back into exercise. My wife and I, after the trial, it is our intention next year of actually doing some travel. Mm -hmm. uh, so finding a different life balance, which is allows me to do what I do, but also to make sure I'm being a little better to me and my wife and my mm -hmm. son. That's important, you know, and you got to put relentless Fred in check a bit, right, <laughs> in order to make that happen. Um, well, find a, it, it definitely have to find yeah. a balance. Uh, before we end, I want to ask you, you, you started a foundation, uh, Orange Ribbons for Jamie, and you also wrote a book called Find the Helpers, uh, which basically is about overcoming grief through hum the humanity of others. Tell us about the foundation and, and, and the book. Yeah, so so Orange Ribbons for Jamie, um, it, the way that came about, orange was Jamie's favorite color. And the, the day she was killed, all of her, what I call dance sisters, got together at a dance studio and made thousands of orange ribbons to give out at the funeral. And at the funeral, in the eulogy, I talked about this like orange ribbons movement that was starting today. Didn't really know what that meant when I said it. I just knew there was going to be something. A few weeks later, I was in a Home Depot. Of all places, I tell you, like I said earlier, Jamie sends me signs all the time because what color is their sign? Orange. And someone came up to me and asked me about the orange ribbon that I was wearing. When I told him, I said, do you know that's the color of the gun safety movement? And I had no idea. It wasn't part of my world before. And I went home from Home Depot that day and I said to my wife, we need to start our foundation and call it Orange Ribbons for Jamie. I, I just, that day, 
my singular mission was I wanted to make the orange ribbon the symbol of the gun safety movement, and it is now. Um, and re- what happened is we evolved orange ribbons not to be the political organization, but more to educate on why Jamie's life was cut short, the realities of gun violence, but also to honor what Jamie's life meant and things that matter to Jamie in life, whether it's Jamie's love of dogs and our support of the Humane Society or Jamie's um, complete hatred of bullies and her ability to stop bullies and we support anti-bullying programs. But we also um, started a college scholarship program for kids of all abilities because Jamie volunteered her time for kids with special Mm -hmm. needs. And so we have three buckets and we give out to kids who are going to major in a field where you're going to help others or major in dance because Jamie loved dance or a kid with a documented special need, but who plans to go on to post high school education. And we provide for all of that. We've also started um, a program where we help families affected by gun violence. And as part of that, We've been doing work with World Central Kitchen to feed families affected by gun mm-hmm. violence. Um, and so I, the foundation will exist far beyond my political work and advocacy work to honor Jamie's life. As for the book, um, I told you writing has become my therapy. When we were planning Jamie's funeral, the funeral director handed me a journal and said, have you ever journaled before? And I said, not really, no. He goes, do me a favor, take this as a gift and just promise me you'll use it. So I did. And I started journaling. I'd never done that before. And that was in February of 2018. And in April of 2018, I said to my wife, I want to write a book. I want to tell our story of being a part of two American tragedies. As you know, my brother died because of 9-11 and how the country responded differently to both. And over the course of writing this book, it evolved into a story of helpers because the truth is, in the process of writing, I realized there's not a single thing that has ever happened to me, for me, or in any capacity that has ever happened without others by my side. And the book really developed to the story of all of everything that's happened but all of the amazing people who have gotten me through all of my best moments and my worst. Um, and we all have those helpers in our life. And, I, and it is ultimately the book of how I got through grief by, by acknowledging the role of others. Um, and it's a message, the very last paragraph is a message to the kids of our country about leadership. Because as I tell them all, We all will have moments in our life, some bigger than others, but ultimately what matters more than the moment is the way you react to it. And the way you react will define you. And I want kids to understand that no matter what happens, we can get through anything. Well, and we do it with the help of others. You are amazing. You are my hero. We are kindred spirits. And uh, I thank you for everything you have done and are doing, because I know, I know how, 
I know how tough it is to compartmentalize that and move on. So thank you, Fred. And thank you for, for joining us today. Thanks, Andy. All right. Next time I'm in New York, we're going to do Oh, yeah. Dinner. Let's do it. All righty, Fred. Take care. So there you have it. Episode five in the can. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So leave us a message at 845-307-7446 or email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Andy Ostroy. Thank you to the uh, engineering team of Maddie Rosenberg and Jen Hamoud. Uh, Cricket Langell for our logo graphic design. Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music. And a big thank you again to our incredible guest, Fred Guttenberg. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and in your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>